Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to office hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus and learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM, Radio Free Lexington. Hey, I swear, we're here. It's... (laughs) 88.1 WRFL <laughs> Lexington. Uh, this is office hours. Just we're you it know is. there was a there was a commotion in the studio, you know, had to be taken care of. I had studio a, business. I had to rough some people up. Yeah. And yes. now they're and now they're gone. <laughs> but so we're we're here. It is office hours, like it is every Wednesday from two to three. So Welcome and thanks for tuning in. Come on in. Come on in. Take your uh, take your slippers off. <laughs> take your slippers off. Yeah, take them off. <laughs> right? You were real casual on the way here. I, well, I had casu- slippers, I had slippers yeah. on the way over. Yep. But there's nothing like putting your toes in the WRFL carpet. That's right. You know what I mean, that's just yeah, a. It's really, like putting it in sand. You yeah, know? it's a yep. really good feeling. It is. <laughs> and it's yeah. only and I can only do that for a, another few weeks, mm-hmm. and then WRFL will move. To the basement of um, Whitehall and POT over there by the uh, post office. It's like the reverse penthouse mm-hmm. of of UK. Mm-hmm. It is. Yep. I always think that's where all the things that you discard throughout the week end up. You know, are brought down there. Uh, but you can try to discard WRFable. It will. No, you it cannot. Will, it will rise above. <laughs> will rise like yep. the ashes. It is not biodegradable. No. So um, this is a special show this week. <laughs> That's beca- one way to put it. Because <laughs> my guest is your usual host. That's right. Is mm-hmm. Sarah Schutze, who um, just on Monday became doctor. Sarah Schutze. That's right. So, <laughs> clap track. Clap track. I didn't have that. It's like old timey radio. Didn't have that you know? cued in. Uh, so A or one. You like A or one? Um, I like a mixture. I like inconsistency. Okay. So we'll go with uh, A first. Yeah, and then two. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't. You don't know if I'm going to do. I'm going to do. I, there's numbers and letters are only two kinds of subsets. Okay. So I may like do something else as a third subset. You Get don't it. even know mm-hmm. a shape of some kind. Right. <laughs> Triangle. <laughs> um, congrats. Thank you. I'm sure that you have some weight lifted off yeah. of you magically. Yeah, it's true. Um, so. You are usually our hostess here, but let's kind of get into what your um, interests in research are and your background. Uh, you are from where in the world? Originally from Wisconsin. I grew up on right on Lake Michigan, Racine, Wisconsin. Milwaukee? Milwaukee is is, Milwaukee? is definitely what I consider my hometown. Yeah. I didn't so, grow up there, but my husband and I spent most of our so lives it, together there. Uh, Racine, you said? Yeah. yeah. So uh, you have a, a close affiliation, or you have a close love for um, the... Uh, um, the... Uh, it could be a lot of things finishing that <laughs> sentence. I don't know. <laughs> what was the name of the Racine team in um, oh, the, a League of Their Own? Yeah, it wasn't. It was the Rockford Peaches, right? Racine. I don't remember. But you were probably, they all fruit? 
No, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> don't the Racine Cherry Pits. Bells, maybe? Racine Bells could be. I don't know. That would have come out of some closet in my brain if that's actually true. But I love that movie. Right. Yes, of course. We all did. And, uh, well, good. Yeah. And then where did you do undergraduate? And at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. um, and that's a great school. Madison, UW-Madison is kind of the... the sure. Flagship. Yeah, the flagship state school, but... Um, and it's uh, Madison's a real college town. It's also the state capital, but Milwaukee is a pretty amazing town. You've been there. You know, it's it's like Cleveland yep. in the way that you love Cleveland. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a post-industrial lakeside town with... Beer. Uh, beer. A lot of beer. Breweries. Yep. A lot of breweries, a lot of sports, but also just an amazing, like, uh, independent music scene. Mm-hmm. Um, really great theater there. Amazing, um, you know, mid-century or even, like, early 20th century um, architecture, 19th century architecture. Yep. Yeah. It's, I, Milwaukee is really home. Yep. Yeah. And uh, then from um, University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. You ended up in Lexington. There are a couple or, places along the way between there and here. So, take us, take us on your okay. geog- geography. <laughs> my my journey from. Yeah. The, I mean, I, I did come. We did come directly from Milwaukee here. But when I finished my my bachelor's degree, I got an MFA at the University of of Michigan and. You always tease me about about that because why? Why would I do because that? Because you're the uh, the Ohio State fan, a oh. fan of the Ohio State, and all things related to that. <laughs> and and um, you know, I went to Michigan. I wear a Michigan sweatshirt, but I have no like interest in the sports that come out of Michigan. And mm-hmm. there's allegedly <laughs> a long. Uh, they have some of those. Yeah, yeah. I hear that that happens there. Right. That they play a couple games of ball around there. And so, um, and how long were you in Ann Arbor? Years, then? Two yeah. years in Ann Arbor, and um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, that was my first stint in graduate school in MFA, so it's a master's in in fine arts, creative writing, and. So I we as MFA students we took some classes in in literature which was a really good introduction to graduate studies but doing an MFA is very different because it's you're working primarily on your creative so body at that work. at that point were you thinking that you wanted to be a writer or a creative writer yeah I knew I wanted to have a PhD at some point even then and that just was creative writing was kind of. Um, Kind of later in my undergrad is something that I got very interested in. I knew from the time I was 19 or so, maybe even 18, that I wanted to do uh, a PhD. I knew I wanted to be a professor because I, I, I had grown up being, you know, the typical nerd, loving to read, and I, I read old books and you know things my family had, had not heard of or read or anything like that that I just found on my own, and. Um, and loved English in high school. So when I saw an English professor as an undergrad just teaching, and she was just so serene and so like, happy in what she was doing, and it just it never occurred to me that that is something that you could do. And so I knew I wanted to do that, but when I was um, in kind of my last couple years or my last year of my undergrad, I started getting really interested in creative writing. And that was the because it was sort of the new thing for me, I thought, oh, I'll just pursue this for now and, and see where it takes me. But I did think that I was going to go back and get a PhD at some point. 
And um, so the MFA happened, and I got it. Michigan had a really strong program, and um, it was a great opportunity. So, and I had a lot of fun doing that degree, and um, a lot of great colleagues. And uh, after that, I moved back to Milwaukee and um, taught a little bit, adjuncted at a couple of different schools. And anybody who adjuncts realizes after a certain point that... You can't adjunct anymore. No, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a temporary gig, you know. And it's from one semester to the next, you never know. If you're going to hire yeah, you back Yeah, if you're going to have anything. In my experience with the schools that I adjuncted at, and they were good, they were nice places to work, but um, I often would hear... Uh, well, you know, maybe we'll have something, maybe this class will open up, or maybe we'll have something permanent or full-time, and that was never actually going to happen. You know, there were, I was kind of long on the bottom of a list of, of a long list of adjuncts, and right. as being the youngest person there, and by that point, I think I was only like 26 or so, and there were people who had been adjuncting at those schools for a long, long time, and it, I realized, all right, this is, I'm not going to hang on until... Right. You could push all those people aside. Right. Look out. Here I come. <laughs> right. New, new kid in town. That's right. Guns blazing. Yep. You know, I did, I, you know, I also was a very eager new teacher at that time, so I did a lot of extra work voluntarily. So you were cutthroat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I, you know, I wanted to, to get something more permanent, and the first step in doing that was to get an MA. Mm-hmm. So I went back taught a ton. I taught four or five classes every semester adjuncting and then did my MA at UWM, which is where I did my undergrad. And, um, and again, a really good program, a lot of fun. I had, I had great colleagues that are still close friends of mine. So so <clears throat> you end up here mm-hmm. to work on, your, yep. work on your PhD. And uh, when you got here, um, and you started work and got into your first couple years and then you did exams and stuff did you know uh when did you know what you kind of wanted to specialize in or what your kind of path that you wanted to take i knew that i wanted to do something with um early american um so pre-1900 um literature because when I made that decision to come back, it was sort of during the the controversies of um, of the Bush election and Bush reelection, and you know the emergence of the Tea Party, and um, and there was just a lot of changes in the nation at the time, political changes, and that just in a lot of those conversations, you would hear people talking about the origins of of the country what America was based on. And that's a story. You know, I mean, I don't mean to, you know, get political or question anybody's politics, but, you know, we grow, we, every nation's history is a narrative, is a story. And so I really felt compelled to kind of look more closely at the story of of our country's history, our emergence of, you know, um, and, and the, the stories that we tell about it. And, um, you know, my work isn't especially take, doesn't take on like national politics or anything like that per se, but I knew I wanted to do something in that because at the time felt, so it felt very, um, um, of the moment to really explore the, those stories. And my first semester here, I was in a class on, um, on, um, 18th and 19th century, primarily 19th century American lit and, 
Um, I knew I wanted to do something with gothic literature, something that had explored fear. And um, and then I came upon some really interesting narratives about diseases in American literature. And that, that just, like, rung a chord for me right away. I was so fascinated by the way that disease and sickness was written about that I really started thinking from there that that would be what... I wanted to do so I'm really lucky that in my first semester that that struck me and that's what I've done you know until till today and who was that class with that was with Andy Doolin um I, I think it was something about literature of the new republic I'm not sure if that's probably not the right name but it was that sort of uh like late 19th late 18th century into the mid um 19th century and, and that looked at kind of the history uh, or um America's um, stories that they tell about about itself it, from as early as the 1790s. So, right. yeah. Okay, well, let's take a quick okay. break and pick up exactly where we were. Okay. So, hope, like, like the next word you were about to say, All right, I'll just think swallow about it. it. Okay. And then bring it back up. All right. <laughs> Re- Regurgitate it. And yeah. Barf uh, it up. Here on <laughs> Office Hours, 88.1 Radio Free Lexington. Appropriately ending with uh, some rain there in the background. <laughs> because Sarah Schutze, our guest, is such a dark soul. Yeah. She's got rain in her heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sick down to my heart. That's just the way it goes. That's a, a Morrissey lyric. Um, <laughs> so you've taken that to heart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, so right before the break, we were talking about how you were interested in, after your first semester here, uh, 19th century um, kind of gothic um, lit and some of the storylines that tied to disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so what drew you to that, like in your personality or like, or yeah. or just as a general sense? And then what did you, as you started to pull the rope, what really started to um, kind of really bring you in and kind of chase after it? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't. I think it. You know, I just have this interest in. In we talked to, with Manuel last week, and right. and he talked about being interested in, uh, in weird and you know being attracted to weird things in in writing and, um, and that is something that I don't know really what the origins of that are. If it's if it's from growing up listening to well, Smith's lyrics, we've or got what? another we've got another thirty five minutes. Yeah, we'll I'll have to come up with a story. Um, I will, and I don't know if this. If someone once said that um, all dissertations are autobiographical, so I'm not really sure how true that is. And so, but since I heard that, I've been wondering, you know, what what exactly that means for me because I've never never had any kind of real chronic long term sickness or any any like random weird infection or anything like that that um, that I read about the kinds but of did things. You, did, was there anything that well, the, from I, your youth that like that, yeah, that yeah. was. That kind of caught your attention about that. Well, and the thing is, I when I was like less than two years old, one and two years old, I had chronic croup mm. and pneumonia. Mm. And it, as a parent of a baby, I don't know if you've heard Luke cough the croup cough before, but it's it's scary. It's loud and yeah, it's scary. But I don't, I don't truthfully don't remember you know being sick with that. Those right. those ailments, but I was often in the hospital because of you know in the seventies mm-hmm. air air tents you know oxygen tents and um so but so my relationship with that time in my life was through stories that my parents or my family sure. would tell me so my you know I 
So you're the, or like not to like put make light of it, but you like you were the girl in the plastic bubble. I was the girl in the plastic bubble, and okay. that was that was what they loved to tell those stories about. So that's, yeah, how serious right. that I'm, was, you know, okay. scary late night trips to the emergency room and stuff like that. And that, since I didn't actually remember any of that, right. hearing the stories. the stories, yeah, and being sort of you know sort of the hero right. of the story, or All just right. the, the. So this the, we're starting to peel the onion I think, here. I do think that that's that's um, that might be part of of my interest sure. in just stories about sickness but um when i did my mfa i was really interested in kind of superstition and the way that um people construct um knowledge and ideas about things that they can't control or don't really understand and some of that is is health related the way that people um create real um, extensive and elaborate systems to um, intervene or control their health when there's just no other means available to them. So, um, or, or not necessarily just health, but other parts of life, you know, um, sometimes that's supernatural things, you know, like, um, being afraid of witches and mm-hmm. you would put scissors under your door to keep witches away, you know, things, things Still like that. Still true. Yeah. I keep scissors under all my, you know, um, so that kind of stuff is just interesting to me is the, the, um, the narratives about disease uh, from my you know my own background just uh, those are those are interesting stories to me but also kind of just um popular attitudes that aren't necessarily informing any kind of institutional knowledge about about things that affect everybody all the time so take me into the 19th century um and disease world it's pretty fun um I'm guessing that superstitions were more commonplace and in and a higher rate than we kind of see today for a lot of different things. Maybe, but, yeah. And then, of course, medicine was at a very um, rapid growing. Mm-hmm. Not, that, not that medicine isn't growing at a ridiculous pace still every second of the day. Right. But, I mean, the leaps that we've made in the last 200 years with figuring out how to battle Absolutely. diseases. Yeah, and what they are. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, what were some of the kind of the fears or the temperaments of people um, in a lot of the literature that you kind of were researching? Yeah, I look at um, 18th and 19th century disease stories, and those, in a lot of ways, are there's a big difference between just sure. from the 1770s sure. to to the 1830s because a lot was established in the 18th century about medicine you know nothing that um still identified what is the nature of a disease that or what exactly is a a germ or anything like that um that didn't come about until much later in the 19th century so do you know do you know when the when um eat your vegetables came around no because in when i was I'm, i'm i'm taking this question seriously in in 1832 there was a cholera pandemic it was um it was devastating and in america people hadn't seen cholera like this before um no, nothing on this wide scale and in all accounts it had never been introduced to america and it was it's a bacterial disease that travels in water and um it could be deadly because you can become dehydrated and because it, what happens is the the um the bacteria turns your uh, intestines into basically tries to turn it into its natural environment which is like a salty estuary kind of Yikes. yeah so your your system um the natural fluid balance in your system is completely uh, thrown out of whack. And a lot of the 
means of treating medicine, treating diseases, uh, or the strategies used by doctors and and home practitioners included things that would further deplete your system. So bleeding or giving somebody a purgative or something that would make you sicker, you know, would would throw even more um, imbalance into the equation. So fluid imbalance into the equation. So you could die because of of um, dehydration. And, um, you know, you, cholera still exists today. There, it's been ongoing in Haiti since the, the big earthquake because um, the infrastructure has been so so depleted. But um, with cholera in 1832, I think I lost my train of thought. What was your question again? When did uh, eat your vegetables come Oh, out? right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I wouldn't have gotten back to that if I hadn't <laughs> asked you for your question again. Um, but with that, there were so many theories about what caused what caused it, and eating vegetables was thought to be something that could make you get cholera or eating pineapple, or eating and eating certain kind, other kinds of fruits. So, um, you know, there are a lot of of things that were were uh, suggested about just what you ate in your daily life that could could make you sick, not necessarily make you well. And it was more, I think, I think it's safe to say it was more common to to be advised to to eat, uh, you know, meat in some in some cases, you right. know, rather than vegetables, but. Right. Or, or to, to abstain from meat for for your health. You know, they a lot, people were guessing a lot of the time. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so a lot like doctor visits yeah. now. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with you. You could try this or you could try that. Right. Yeah, it's not that different. So where, where's your pain? Right. They just push it a little bit. Yeah. And like, eh, could uh, be could be could it could be a number of things. Right. Yeah. Here's, here's some of these generic drugs that will cure everything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Seems about right. You have a medical degree, I see. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, and so tell me then um, what specifically you kind of narrowed down your mm-hmm. dissertation into. Um, because I'm sure it was early on it's kind of uh, – so obtuse you're trying to figure out exactly yeah. you know an area mm-hmm. right you kind of have an interest in a, in a general sense but you have to kind of really get it down to something more specific so what what was that process like and what did it, what did where did you go i knew from pretty early on that i wanted my project to be something that was really forged out of the archive i really wanted it to be an archivally based project and in a lot of ways that has has been you know made it a harder project to do but um, I knew I wanted to write about sp- specific diseases in the 18th and 19th century and their their kind of literary record or their their textual record, and so I uh, I got a grant, um, my very first research grant, a couple of years ago before I ever started writing any of it, and that was for the College of Physicians in Philadelphia. Some some people may know it as the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, one of the weird you know supposedly one of the weirdest places to travel to. It's this great historical medical museum. And while I was there, I was reading accounts of a yellow fever epidemic in 1793, which was um, a very famous epidemic, had a huge textual record as a result. And um, I read accounts by different doctors and some people who weren't doctors and 
I was just really struck at the volume of material that that produced. So it was in one city, it was one disease, a couple of months long, but there were so many texts that were produced during this period. And it was also a disease that was supposed to have completely desolated the city, but yet here are all these texts that are coming out of it, all these pamphlets and um, newspaper articles. And and, and so obviously the city wasn't, you know, completely desolate. It was still producing something in addition to yellow fever. And so uh, when I was looking at those, I was really um, struck by, um, in addition to the volume, just the emphasis that every single author put on fear in in relation to the disease. And um, not just describing people are really afraid of this disease, but that the fear itself was a problem to the health of the city, that people who let themselves succumb to fear or give, gave in to fear right. were actually more susceptible to being sick. Right. We, you know, we kind of accept that now, but... Well, we, they, still, we, still, we still have oh, fear when yeah. we have a, um, you know, outbreak epide- of yes. bird flu or yes. Ebola and stuff. Right. I mean, it's, like, it's called panic now, and, yeah. and the CDC has to manage that. That's a big part of how... They decide how to distribute or disseminate information about a new outbreak of something, how they want to talk about it, if they want to address it. When bird flu H1N1 um, was really thriving a couple of years ago, there were um, interviews with with the president while he was playing golf, and that was intentional to show that if the president's playing golf, all is okay. Clearly, yeah, you have no fear. Just wash your hands. He's cough not, into your armpit. He's not in his bunker. Right. Yeah, he's not in a hazmat suit. So, so, but in these periods that I write about, fear was understood to be a physiological phenomenon that actually could mimic a disease. So you're, it could train your body to have the exact same symptoms. Right. It could predispose you to catching something, and it could provoke it as well. So it was considered a passion of the mind. I'm making air quotes around passion of mm-hmm. the mind, but it was something that had physiological effects mm-hmm. that were hazardous to your health. So that that was a turning point to really see that okay well a d- diseases have a textual record but the effect of those texts the way that they write about dis- about authors write about diseases as fearsome could create a health hazard in the readers so the um the physiological nature of fear was really uh, very important very good. Well, let's take another break. Okay. I have this huge hankering to play Spreading the Disease by Anthrax, by the way, right now. Do it. I, I don't have it queued up <laughs> oh, at the moment. Oh. But, uh, and it, it probably, you know, well, whatever. We'll, we'll come back and okay. talk more with Dr. Sarah <laughs> on Office Hours. All right. Back on WRFL 88.1 Radio Free Lexington and Office Hours, and the special Office Hours at that. <laughs> I'm Brian. I'm hanging out here with uh, your usual hostess, Sarah Schutze, who has now had the tables turned, even though the table actually hasn't physically turned. It's actually in the same alignment as it always is. I'm facing a different direction, though. That's kind of true. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Sarah Schutze, who just uh, successfully defended her dissertation on Monday and is now wearing a, a T-shirt that says, <laughs> I am doctor. Yeah. She doesn't really How does the tone come across in the T-shirt? Well, I mean, different people are going to read it different ways. Okay. You can't you can't control tone. That's, That's an aggressive T-shirt. Something we've learned over, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's more not, not aggressive as so much as it is like it's kind of like a commanding mm-hmm. shirt. Mm-hmm. 
So we were talking about uh, the interesting kind of aspect of the physiological people, physiological aspect of people and diseases in Philadelphia in the 18th, 19th century Mm -hmm. and people believing that they had things Mm -hmm. even if they didn't have that and that was playing into the fear and they would be succumbed to the fear and that would be their demise. (laughs) Succumbing to fear (laughs) can be your demise. But you want, so we were talking about that but then you said also there was another uh, kind of turning point when you were kind of doing research archival stuff. Yeah. And was this still in Philly? No, this was in uh, New Hampshire. Mm. I think it was the New Hampshire Historical Society archive. And how did did you get there? That I just, um, I had... You like, I took a bus. (laughs) I kind of took a bus. I know. I was in um, Alabama. I had a research grant for a medical um, history library in Alabama. And then um, I had I was going to New Hampshire for Dartmouth Futures of American Studies Institute that summer, so I was gone for just three weeks. So I went from Alabama right to New Hampshire, and then um, between my research in Alabama and the institute, which is a week long workshop where you share writing and work with other other people in your field, um, I was I made sure to stop at um, at some some archives because. Um, and I had some material that I wanted to see there, and they were so small. These archives were small and didn't have a lot of research funding available, so I kind of just took advantage of the time to tack that on to that trip. So um, I was at the New Hampshire Historical Society, which was it was uh, an archive. It's one of the great fun things about this project and doing different archival research was just is seeing the different archives and experiencing the their weirdness yeah. yeah and their quirks because their archives can be very funny places and this was one where the chief librarian was clearly somebody who had been in that job for like 40 years and so the reading room was basically like his whole office there was just like piles of crap everywhere and it was wonderful I liked it it was fun <laughs> it was fun but um while I was there I was looking at some letters um exchange between a man named Josiah Bartlett, who was a doctor in the 18th century, and he was also a member of the Continental Congress from New Hampshire during the American Revolution. Mm. So he was in Philadelphia at the beginning of the American Revolution. He's part of the people who drafted the um, Declaration of Independence. And his wife... Good for him. Yes. Well done, Josiah Bartlett. JB <laughs> and um, uh, his wife was home with her, her their family, their kids and um, they exchanged letters pretty regularly and th- it, part of their concern was that they were going to be spreading um, smallpox through their letters because he was in Philadelphia and was inoculated for smallpox because it was more you know it was circulating there and his family was in a remote part of New Hampshire. New Hampshire in general is pretty remote, and uh, you know a lot of people were spread up, spread apart in this period. And um, so new, people ha- hadn't established a lot of immunities to smallpox. So their his concern was that the the physical letters could could that he was sending to his family could make them sick and kill them. And that was something I hadn't. Anticipated that, that would weigh on you. Yeah, <laughs> right. I know. And there were, and then you know, he would tell stories about other people who had done the same accidentally or on purpose, where smallpox was introduced to families by someone else, um, a family member or a husband sending it home to his 
so to his family and wife. So I, I was just really um, interested at that point of how textual, how material disease was at that time that um, that there's a real intimate relationship between disease and text it's sure. not just what is in the content but the actual physical material was was really important and in this case it was considered possible source of of contagion um, or infection and in the yellow fever um, example that I talked about before the break it was just it was the production of material that came out of the 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 epidemic. So that was a big moment for me. Those two things, that physiological nature of fear and that disease was so text-based, so intimately connected to to text, those were big moments, and that's really what formed the rest of my research and was really the basis for my project. Right on. Yeah. Um, and then you mentioned uh, the Moot Museum. The Mooter Museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And is that right downtown? It is. It's right downtown. It's in Center City. And um, it's on, I think, let's see, 21st um, between Chestnut and Market. And it's a, a great museum. It's a popular tourist spot. Lots of people go there. And um, it's in a beautiful old building. And it's based on uh, the 18th century medical or anatomy collections that people kept. So doctors would keep um, specimens of, from surgeries or um, um, dissections in jars because it was a way that they learned about anatomy, but also just the curiosity of it. Um, and so it's it's full of all these different specimens from 18th and 19th century doctors. And in Philadelphia, Philadelphia in those periods was really central to the establishment of American medicine. Sure. The first medical school was there. And uh, are those are the specimens? Do they gross you out, or do they gross? No. Do they gross out visitors? I think that yeah. They're so you're supposed to be a little gross. <laughs> you're like, out, you're but like, but I you. bring it on. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. There's a, a woman who there's a, a woman's body who she was buried and it, her, somehow her body turned to soap. So that's on display. It's called the Soap Lady. And there's um, uh, an, a huge, huge you sure you're tumor. Not, you sure you weren't in the Ripley's Museum? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think Ripley's is is, is a knockoff of the Mooter. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, because it's, it's an old old tradition. But it's really cool. It was so fun, though, to go and... Um, and Go to the museum every day for research, and it was the the foyer had, was gorgeous marble and this be- big beautiful staircase, and which was roped off. And so to go in there and go up the staircase past the the red rope, you know, you can only imagine if you're touring the museum what is kept upstairs. Right. <laughs> so it was really fun to just sort of disappear. Did up you there. have like a like a kind of maniacal look on your face as you were, were going past? No, and I like played look, it cool. Looked Real back cool. at the people like I'm about to do something really. Like crazy no, with but some people, specimens. People would often say like, "Oh, I wonder what's upstairs." And but I just I acted like it was no big thing. Like this is just what I do all I day. Would, I probably would have milked it more. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like the like. I, I'm, You're playing this it is cool, just, Yeah, like this is no big thing. And so people were like, "Oh man, yeah, that's what weird. does she get to see?" Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But, I mean, truthfully, I didn't see any other specimens. I just saw books. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, it was the break room, and there was right. a guy drinking coffee in there, and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> no. Hey, uh, Willard, back to work. <laughs> you got some decaf? <laughs> uh, let's take our last okay. break very quickly, All and right. we'll be back for the home stretch. The home stretch. With office of hours. Of the Dr. Sarah Schutze hour. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
uh, that Cocktoo twin sounded really, really good to me at that moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was another musical selection from our guest, Dr. Sarah Schutze. And I should mention that the last break, we were playing Casino versus Japan. Um, and both of those things, Cocktoo Twins and Casino versus Japan, um, have to do with your husband. That's right. One yeah. of them is your husband. One of them is my <laughs> husband, and it's not the Cocktoo Twins. <laughs> Casino versus Japan is the is the name that my husband records music under. So I was glad that get a little bit of of him in there. And you both have a love. For the cocktail twins, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, I joked at the break that that's part of the reason why I married my husband. And I would say <laughs> he'd probably just say the same thing to, to me, but that's part of how we uh, we met at a, at a record store many years ago. Mm -hmm. What record store? It was um, Atomic Records, which is no longer in business at, uh, at in Milwaukee. Yeah. And he worked there for many, many years. And he, he's worked here in Lexington at CD Central. He still works there on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. And um, so he's... A lifer, <laughs> but I used to I I took a fancy to him, and so I would go into Atomic Records like maybe every other day and yeah. bought a lot of music and just so I could flirt with the record store guy. So it helped your music collection though. Too. It did. It did. Yeah. It got really strong. Yeah, but I mean, once we got married and moved in together, we both basically had the same stuff because I just would get recommendations right. from him. So. so you were just trying. They were like impression impression yeah, buys. Right. I like this too. Oh sure yeah. No. I, what's this playing that you're playing? Ooh, can I buy that? Yes. <laughs> right. Something. Is there like an that. older album that they have too? Right. Is there an import? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm that into them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very good. Yeah. Um, and so, dissertation defended, and now it on is. to next chapter. And yeah. so you'll be starting this fall where? I am going to be a visiting assistant professor at St. Norbert College in De Pere, Wisconsin. And that's a three-year term, so I'm really excited to be... We're both really excited to be going back to Wisconsin, but... Um, it's a, a small liberal arts school and just I, outside of Green Bay. Yep, just outside of Green Bay. Mm -hmm. Beautiful campus right on a river, and it's I am just so excited. I uh, I'm going to have amazing um, colleagues who have been super welcoming and great hardworking students. So it's a real dream first job for sure. It's a dream job at any stage, but I'm lucky to be starting out there and to be teaching what I'm trained to teach you know it's a very tough market and um, you kind of have to be willing to teach anything and um, even things outside of your expertise but um, I'm excited that I get to really teach what I've learned and know and, and an expert in. and uh, which uh, take me inside your classroom what's it what's your what's the classroom led by Dr. Schutze like um, it's right now. I'm teaching online, so it's weird. It's so, it, it so involves it's an, my it's, pajamas. It's and, empty. Right. It's really lonely. <laughs> it is. It is. I'm looking forward to having you know non-virtual students. Yeah. yeah. Again, and um, you know, I'm I like a, a casual, fun classroom. Um, I really, it's really important to me that my classes become like communities where everybody has a partic participates and has a voice because um, you know we can learn so much from each other I learn so much from my students and I also think if you're connected to the community then you're more connected to the the content and you know I think students who are engaged in in a classroom community do better and we all as a group have a little more fun and cover more ground together successfully yeah I think it's important to yeah 
I think it's important to see other people. Yeah. And that's why I'm going to play the last song, Seeing Other People by Belle and Sebastian. Okay. See what I was doing there? I was just setting I you up. I didn't know. So I didn't see where it was going at smoothly. all. I didn't see mm, it. That's why I'm a professional You could DJ. also say I didn't see it coming <laughs> <laughs> by Belle and Sebastian. <laughs> it's so many options. Yeah. Um, but uh, The world is your oyster. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for... Uh, being on your own show. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you. No, th- but thank you for for just giving me the uh, opportunity to talk about my stuff and also just the shout out for finishing. Yeah, this. I mean, I, li- I like to wield power. Yeah, and, you do. And so, uh, you know, that's the beauty of WRFL. Mm-hmm. Sort of a warlord. <laughs> <laughs> Office Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Drupi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive. <laughs>